0: This is the Padre Peregrina podcast, theology from a wandering priest, where you can learn scripture from the fathers and traditional catechisms for free. Join Father David Nix here for shows on church reform and world politics, all from the point of view of Apostolic Catholicism, the original founded by Christ. This is RCT number 27, the third day. RCT stands for the Roman Catechism of Trent. We are on page 70 to 72. This is the Creed, Article 5, Section C. God give you his peace, and nomine paci et spiritu santi. Amen. O heavenly King, Comforter, Spirit of truth, who art everywhere present and fillest all things, treasury of good things and giver of life, come and dwell in us, and cleanse us of all impurity, and save our souls, O good one. In nomine Sifiti, et spiritu santi. Amen. The Roman Catechism of Trent, also known as the Roman Catechism of Pope St. Pius V, probably written at least in part by St. Charles Borromeo, reads this the third day. In explanation of the additional words of the article, the third day, the pastor should inform the people that they must not think our Lord remained in the grave during the whole part of these three days, but as he lay in the sepulchre one full day part of the preceding and a part of the following day, he is said, with strictest truth, to have lain in the grave for three days, and on the third day to have risen again from the dead. To prove that he was God, he did not delay his resurrection to the end of the world, while, on the other hand, to convince us that he was truly man and really died, he rose not immediately, but on the third day after his death, a space of time sufficient to prove the reality of his death. Okay, me here, a few things to unpack. Not very complex, but important. First, what the Catechism is saying is that Christ was in the tomb spanning three calendar days, but that doesn't mean it was 24 hours times three. That would obviously come to 72 hours. Well, Jesus was not in the tomb 72 hours. You all know that. Now, by my calculations, from Friday at 3 p.m. to, I would suspect, sometime around Sunday at 3 a.m., obviously, that would only come to about 36 hours, So at 36 hours, why in the world do we say three days? Well, because his time in the tomb spanned part of Good Friday and all of Holy Saturday and part of Easter Sunday. This is why we say he rose on the third day. Okay, but then this leads to another question. Why was he down for 36 hours and not just say, I don't know, a few hours? Well, we heard the answer that that was... To convince us that he was truly man and really died, and that this was, quote, a space of time sufficient to prove the reality of his death, close quote. Now, this is important because Muslims believe Jesus didn't really die on the cross. Many of you have heard stories, modern stories, of someone being found alive in the morgue, but usually it's the evening of the day that they allegedly died and someone didn't take a pulse. Not so with being dead for 36 hours. Jesus was really dead in the tomb for 36 hours before he raised himself by his own power. Now, on the other hand, Jesus didn't wait until the general resurrection. That's the end of time when the rest of us will be raised. Why didn't he raise himself at the same time that he will raise us? Well, the catechism just said to prove that he was God, he did not delay his resurrection to the end of the world. The catechism, again, according to the scriptures here the fathers of the First Council of Constantinople added the words according to the scriptures which they took from St. Paul. These words they embodied with the creed because the same apostle teaches the absolute necessity of the mystery of the resurrection when he says, If Christ be not risen again, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain, for you are yet in your sins. 1 Corinthians 15:14 and 17. Hence, admiring our belief in this article, St. Augustine says, It is no great thing to believe that Christ died, This the pagans, Jews, and all the wicked believe. In a word, all believe that Christ died. But that he rose from the dead is the belief of the Christians. To believe that he rose again, this we deem of great moment. Hence it is that our Lord very frequently spoke to his disciples of his resurrection, and seldom or never of his passion without adverting to his resurrection. Thus when he said, the Son of Man shall be delivered to the Gentiles and shall be mocked and scourged and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will put him to death. He added, and the third day he shall rise again. See Luke 18, verses 31 to 32. Also, when the Jews called upon him to give an attestation of the truth of his doctrine by some miraculous sign, he said, a sign shall not be given to them but the sign of Jonas the prophet. For as Jonas was in the whale's belly three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. See Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 to 40. Me again. So I believe this also refers to the Old Testament when we hear Jesus was raised according to the scriptures. I can say at least the resurrection is found, if not explicitly, at least implicitly in the Old Testament, as the prophet Daniel chapter 10, verses 5 to 6 predicts the Messiah would be in a glorified state, as it reads, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And then we have Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. This predicts that the Messiah would defeat death, as it reads, I shall ransom them from the power of shale. I shall redeem them from death. O death, where are your plagues? O shale, where is your sting? And the Catechism again, three useful considerations on this article. To understand still better the force and meaning of this article, there are three things which we must consider and understand. First, why the resurrection was necessary. Secondly, its end and object. Thirdly, the blessings and advantages of of which it is to us the source. Necessity of the resurrection. With regard to the first, it was necessary that Christ should rise again in order to manifest the justice of God. For it was most congruous that he, who through obedience to God was degraded and loaded with ignominy, should by him be exalted. This is a reason assigned by the apostle when he says to the Philippians, he humbled himself becoming obedient unto death, even to death on the cross, For which cause God also hath exalted him? See Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 to 9. He rose also to confirm our faith, which is necessary for justification, for the resurrection of Christ from the dead by his own power affords an irrefragable proof that he was the Son of God. Me again. So one of the things that they did keep in the Novus Ordo Mass from the traditional Latin Mass was the Easter preface that reads, By dying, he destroyed our death. By rising, he restored our life. So yes, they actually translated that well from the ancient Latin preface and didn't change it. They kept that in the new mass. And really, in those simple 12 words, you have almost the entire Paschal mystery, almost the whole mystery of Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday in those 12 awesome words. By dying, he destroyed our death. By rising, he restored our life. Okay, the catechism again continues. Again, the resurrection nourishes and sustains our hope. As Christ rose again, we rest on an assured hope that we too shall rise again. The members must necessarily arrive at the condition of their head. This is the conclusion which St. Paul seems to draw when he writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15 and to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4. And Peter, prince of the apostles, says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy hath regenerated us unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead unto the inheritance incorruptible. See 1st Peter chapter 1 verses 3 to 4. Finally, the resurrection of our Lord as the pastor should inculcate was necessary to complete the mystery of our salvation and redemption. By his death Christ liberated us from sin. By his resurrection, he restored us to the most important of those privileges which we had forfeited by sin. Hence these words of the apostle: "He was delivered up for our sins and rose again for our justification," Romans 4:25. "That nothing, therefore, may be wanting to the work of our salvation, it was necessary that he died, he should also rise again." Me again. So right there in Romans 4.25, he was delivered up for our sins and rose again for our justification. That has to be the basis of what we hear in the Easter preface of the Latin Mass and even the New Mass. By dying, he restored our death. By rising, he restored our life. Now, as we spoke of before, nearly everything in Christ's resurrected body we will get to if we're saved. Now, the mnemonic that I personally use from Ludwig A is CASI. Sounds like almost in Spanish. CASI, C-A-S-I. And here are, if you can remember those four letters, those correspond to the four aspects that you're going to get, please God, in your resurrected body, in the general judgment at the end of time, when our bodies are returned to us, but with these four astonishing qualities that are conglomerated and given to us by Ludwig Ott in the book Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma. So here's the book right here by Ludwig Ott, and I'm going to read you the aspects of the resurrected body that all the saved will get. Just remember C A S I. So C, C stands for Claritas, that is Greek for glory, that is being free from everything, deformed, and being filled with beauty and radiance. Jesus assures us, "The just shall shine as the sun in the kingdom of their Father," Matthew thirteen forty three. The archetype of the little T transfiguration is the capital T transfiguration of Jesus on Tabor and after the resurrection. The intrinsic reason for the transfiguration lies in the overflowing of the beauty of the transfigured soul onto the body. The grade of the transfiguration of the body, according to 1 Corinthians 15, will vary according to the degree of clarity of the soul or glory of the soul, which is in proportion to the measure of the merits. So what it's saying right there is you will shine like the sun if you're saved and you will, you will shine brighter depending on the merits of the sacrificial level of love that you lived on earth. A. Agilitas. That's a and c a Agilitas is the capability of the body to obey the soul with the greatest ease and speed of movement. It forms a contrast to the heaviness of the earthly body, which is conditioned by the law of gravity. This agility was manifested by the risen body of Christ, which was suddenly present in the midst of his apostles and which disappeared just as quickly. See John 20 and Luke 24. The intrinsic reason of agility lies in the perfect dominion over the body of the transfigured soul to the extent that it moves the body. Now that might seem a little bit fantastical or outrageous to some of you, but this is what it's saying. The Bible and the fathers and St. Thomas Aquinas all say that in your physical resurrected body, we're not talking about a a spiritual body, in your physical resurrected body, you won't even have gravity in the new heavens and the new earth affecting you. Or even if you do have gravity affecting you, you'll be able to move around it. Essentially, it's saying you're going to be able to fly in your new body. S, subtlety, in Latin, subtilitas, that is, a spiritualized nature, which, however, is not to be conceived as a transformation of the body into a spiritual essence or as a refinement of the matter into an ethereal body. The archetype of the spiritualized body is the risen body of Christ, which emerged from the sealed tomb and penetrated closed doors, see John 20. The intrinsic reason of the spiritualization of the body lies in the complete dominion of the body by the transfigured soul insofar as it is the essential form of the body. So notice right there that the resurrected bodies will be physical, but there won't be like uh, burping and things because the body will follow perfectly the intellect. There's going to be no mistakes in the new body like burping, even though it would be a physical body. And then I, C-A-S-I, I I stands for impossibilitas in Latin, which is the incapability of suffering. That is, according to Ot, inaccessibility to physical evils of all kinds, such as sorrow, sickness, and death. Let me pause right there. You will have your body and soul united again in heaven, please God, but there will be no sorrow, sickness, and death. Ah, it says it may be more closely defined as the impossibility to suffer and to die. We read in Apocalypse chapter 21, verse 4, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Nor mourning, nor crying, nor sorrow should be any more, for the former things are passed away. And Luke twenty thirty-six, Neither can they die any more. The intrinsic reason for impassibility lies in the perfect subjection of the body to the soul. Let me just read those again. All of our problems on earth if you make it to heaven, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit through the Apostle John in Apocalypse 21.4. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and death shall be no more, nor mourning, nor crying, nor sorrow shall be any more, for the former things are passed away. Please say an hour, Father, for me, at benedictio Deum potentis. Patris of Fiti, Spiritus Sancti, Descendit Super Vos, Mane et Semper. Amen.